0: You just gone mental loop. Leap, 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 leap. Someone move the stylus in the grooves of my brain. Leap, 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 leap. Hello, I'm J. Daniel Sawyer. And
1: I'm Kitty Nickian. And
0: you're listening to The Next 10,000 Hours, Beachfront Edition. Beach. This is our first episode in a year. Or almost a year.
1: A little bit over a year. Yeah, I had recorded a Kitty's Corner about a year ago, but we never got around to dropping it and recording the rest of the next 10,000 hours.
0: So when weather permits, we're going to make this uh, recording on the beach a new tradition because it's fucking gorgeous out here. And if I have to give up my home of 30 years, goddammit, I'm going to look at the beach.
1: Our topic tonight
0: is taking the leap. Which might come in handy if you ever find yourself on the edge of Half
1: Dome with no safety gear. Okay, now that's not a leap so much as a suicidal jump. Yeah,
0: but they both feel the same about three quarters of the way through. It's only that last 10% that feels any different. Oh, well, okay, yeah. The last 10% at Half Dome, you're like, Oh, fuck, I'm really gonna die. Ah, splat. And the last 10% of taking the other kind of leap, you're like, Oh, fuck, I'm going to make it!
1: Oh, fuck, thank God!
0: (laughs) But the rest of it feels exactly the same.
1: There is that.
0: In keeping with our theme of the next 10,000 hours, the problem with the next 10,000 hours is you get to round out your education. You get your first 10,000 hours in becoming enough of an expert at the things you do to be a professional, or at least to do work at the level of a professional. You spend the next 10,000 hours falling on your face and figuring out how to make being a professional work in the context of you know, life. Yeah. And the economy, and other things like that. And you engage in crazy experiments that sometimes work, and sometimes don't, and when they both work and don't work at the same time, they're very interesting. Like, what happened with Crud Rat. Uh, which, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: which we had expected, based on previous experience, to be able to knock out In a calendar quarter, or a little longer, once you add in the rewards, or the stretch goals that got successfully funded.
1: That didn't happen. No.
0: Not only did we run into production troubles of sorts that we had never before encountered, over and over again, every time we thought we had one, we came up with a new one, we also ran up against the fact that our business model did not fit our location. That is, yeah. And our business model was not something that we could change enough to make our location work and still run the kind of arts business that we wanted to, which meant that um, we had to change our location. So we found ourselves in this position where we're looking down the barrel at unfulfilled obligations, not just to our regular audience, which is you guys and the podcast audience, but to... Those of you that funded the Kickstarter campaign, and that's a debt. You know, someone gives you money to produce something, that's a debt. And we're only just now finishing up the last of the physical rewards for that. Fucking finally, and we're so sorry it's taken so long. But you find we found those obligations slipping in ways that we couldn't control for without making some very radical changes. And in my case it turned out that the change was to choose between keeping my home of 30 years not the house i grew up in but the neighborhood i grew up in keeping my home of more than 30 years or living the kind of life i wanted to as an artist and an entrepreneur and we had tried for so many years to make both work and we were finally forced to face the fact that it was one or the other
1: uh, and that's this is a choice that a lot of a lot of our peers are, are having to face right now. Whether they can make it full-time as, as artists and whether they want that more than they want the conveniences of an urban life. Particularly an urban life on the coasts, which is where urban life is really expensive. Yeah, It's a choice everybody has to make when they make their living off the arts. It, it's a choice of being a full-time artist
0: or... Well, it's not just that, but it, it's there's a set... Of choices that, that when you're forging a, a career path, that there's a wide that, that there's a wide highway for, because yeah. a lot of people take it and it suits you. You make a lot of trade-offs that are largely invisible to you. You choose this over that because time is the one thing that you can't get more of, at least until life extension comes fully online. Right. Um, but time will always be the one truly limited resource. And when you choose a more traditional career path, you make a lot of those choices up front. And you don't appreciate the ramifications of them, but most people who make those choices, they're suited to them and they like it. When you're not suited to that, for whatever reason, either you're too lazy or you're too restless (laughs) or you're... Too contrary, um, not
1: that I know anything about that. But. Or you can't stand sitting in a desk all fucking day. I'm sorry about that. All freaking day. All damn day. Whatever. adult podcast. You can say fuck. Oh, thank God. If, if you hate sitting in a desk all day and, and the, the thought of it just drives you bonkers and, and sitting in a desk all day, sitting in a long for two hours a day, you, j- you just want to stab your eyes out
0: (laughs) when you're you're on one of those unconventional paths you find yourself eventually, no matter how well you do at putting it off you find yourself eventually confronted with priorities choice, do I want this path enough to abandon other things I love or to put on hold other things I love or do I love those things more and making that choice on purpose and living with the consequences, whichever it is, is one of the things you have to do if you're going to make a go at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that applies to all kinds of things. It applies to how you structure your family, it de- applies to your business model, to where you live. Sometimes it applies to to what sorts of art you do. And it's 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 a lot of very personal stuff, and it's difficult. But I think one of the reasons a lot of artists, a lot of really good artists, tend to wash out is of the long-term career part of art, of the arts, and the business part of the arts. Is they come to that cho- they come to that choice point, and they realize they love what they're doing because it gives them a relief from the um, more ordinary life that they otherwise prefer. They like it as an escape. Um, in our case, it was never an escape; it was an obsession. Yeah. And any time that we had to put the brakes on the obsession, not only did our business suffer for it, but we personally suffered for it. To the point where we were starting to develop health problems (laughs) that are gone now. Because the stress burden is so much lower, even though the obligation burden is higher. The pressure is higher, but the stress is lower, and it's a very
1: strange
0: strange thing. It's what we were hoping happened, but I personally...
1: I, I personally didn't know.
0: Didn't I, I think I, it
1: would really work. I personally blame the stress reduction a hundred percent on there being a beach two and a half blocks from where we live.
0: That and it being the kind of place where it's not only safe to walk outside for long stretches of time, but it's pleasant. And so, when you get stuck going outside and actually clearing your mind by walking through the woods or walking on the beach mm. is possible. For us both, that's something that. We didn't quite realize we were missing until we got here. I expected that being out in the rural Neverlands would be pleasant, but I didn't <laughs> expect it would really matter. I it was like I was like, "Oh, we're getting new art for the wall," right? <laughs> but I find that I'm out here every day, and the days when I'm not out here, getting some exercise and some fresh air and some centering time, and catching up on my podcasts. Every day I don't do that is a day that my productivity is down and my headaches come back
1: all that yeah. kind of stuff and it's not even the exercise I, I i find i i get the same benefits from sitting out on the bench near the beach mm. almost as much as i do of taking a walk down the beach it's just relaxing it centering it takes you out into the salt air god i love the salt air God, I've missed the salt air. <laughs> I, I grew up on the coast in a coastal town, and my God, I've missed it. <laughs> I didn't
0: grow up on the coast. It was always just like go for you know go for a Saturday sometimes, but I always yeah. loved it. So anyway, um, because of all this, you'll be noticing some changes. Like, for example, we're back again. We're back. And we might actually be able to stick around this time. And we have podcasts coming up. And we do. We've got story podcasts coming up. Um,
1: Free Will is back.
0: Free Will is back. Two weeks from when you hear this, you'll hear the next Free Will episode.
1: And Um, we'll be doing
0: next 10,000 again. mm -hmm. Next 10,000 will be a regular thing. And there will be more Kitty's Corner. More (laughs) Kitty's Corner. (laughs) Lots more Kitty's Corner. And you're also editing PodCastle now.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: PodCastle, the Escape Artist's Fantasy Magazine. Kitty is now the editor for it. That's one of her... uh, her new jobs as a professional artisty person.
1: It, it it's a terrible job. I have to read stories every night. <laughs> terrible, terrible. I tell you, such a burden. And to
0: help keep uh, to help keep all this going and incentivized, one of the one of the good things that came out of Crudrat is we were able to throw paid work to people that we've worked with all these years who've worked for us for free because they liked the stories, they liked the kind of stuff we did. And we were able to pay pay them for their work on Crudrat and Up front, even. Up front. And I kind of got a taste for that. hmm And that oddly disincentivized me personally from getting back into free will because I felt guilty about going back and going, oh, boy, I have to ask them for lines and I can't write them a check for it. And I'm <laughs> such a bad person exploiting my friends. So uh, what we figured out what we've done is we've set up a Patreon, which you'll be hearing more about on the next Free Will episode, because, I mean, it's live, and you can find it by searching for my name, but it's not quite finished yet. But I've costed out what it'll take, um, per episode for me to be able to pay all the actors, to give Shady a little bit of rent money so that he won't have to squeeze us in between other gigs, um, all that kind of stuff. And, um, we're gonna do the podcast anyway. Whether anyone comes to the Patreon or not, but the Patreon will help us pay those people, and uh, and and also, if it gets popular enough, it'll help us produce a lot more stuff sooner than we otherwise would, mm-hmm. like the Lantham books and uh, stuff like that. And there's some cool rewards and whatnot, and we'll be letting you guys know about all that stuff. So, welcome back to the next 10,000 Hours. We're back. Um... We're back regularly, because it's part of our business model now, and um, I guess now it's time for uh, for a story. Woo! Story time, and then Kitty's Corner. Story. The Resurrection Junket, Chapter 2, The Program. Wanda Laird's office at the San Diego facility was as bellicose and ostentatious as the woman herself. A sharp-eyed bat who had arrested her aging in her early fifties, and as big around the middle as she was tall, she did not manage to conceal the cruel smirk behind her diplomatic grin. Not that she really tried. She was behind an old, grizzled wooden desk filled with knots and twists, sanded and polished to a mirror sheen. It was the kind of desk good only for intimidating underlings like Gi. Under Laird's withering gaze, she felt even smaller than the 155-centimeter frame bequeathed to her by her Himalayan ancestors. G, who at this point had not yet experienced the dubious pleasure of her own death, took careful notes determined to put a parody of Dr. Laird into her next book as revenge for forcing her through this tiresome meeting when she could have spent the afternoon not working on greeting the non-existent visitors that theoretically might materialize outside the Foundation's front doors. It is quite a promotion, Miss Chan. It wasn't the words so much as the tone that sounded like a warning in the pit of G.E.'s stomach. If ever there was a person regarding whom human was a useless adjective, it was Laird. That was what made her a good department head, and it was a quality that G.E. had always respected. Until now. And you're offering this to me? Why? Sitting in the beam of that clinical gaze made her feel like a specimen being readied for dissection. I am no planetary scientist. You have people who have worked 80 years just for this chance, and you wish to send me? It has come to our attention, the head's corpulent frame leaned toward G, looming over her without ever stirring from her quasi-throne, that you've carved out quite a name for yourself in the fiction world. Not an easy game these days. Not exactly reputable. G became, though she'd not have believed it possible, even more acutely aware of her minute stature, but she kept her voice level, without a hint of a quaver. My time is my own. My stories are my business. And when your stories include confidential information that you obtain through abusing your position, when they feature caricatures of respected businessmen and hectoring depictions of your co-workers who come through that door and complain to me about it, Yi's chair seemed to grow six sizes, just enough to make her feel like a rabbit in a wolf's cage, not enough to let her hide under the cushion. You are a drain on this company's resources, a scourge on its morale, and frankly an embarrassment to anyone possessing even a modicum of self-respect. We've reviewed the available options, you have a good eye for detail, almost a journalist's eye. At the moment, the pool is made up of specialists in relevant fields, However, it has been a matter of some concern that the Foundation has never provided for the presence of a biased observer, someone who might bring out the elements invisible to the data crunchers. They asked us to help create a pool of chroniclers for this experiment. Since we have not yet filled the slate, I've decided to offer you a choice. You may stay here, and we will prosecute you to the fullest extent. Or you may go and chronicle one of the missions." But why must— This is a long-term experiment. Success means you'll be away for decades. A return ticket means coming back to a world that won't recognize you. And if I wanted to— Miss Laird cocked an improbably pointy eyebrow, managing to look rather like a wizened toad affecting vague amusement at the misfortunes of her pollywogs. If the experiment is a success, you will have every opportunity to travel wherever you want, even back here though I doubt very much it's an experience you'll wish to embrace a second time. She didn't know what to make of that. She'd never learned the details of the new travel process, but assumed that it must somehow involve cryonics, which had a nasty reputation for coma terrors. She frankly wasn't enthused about going through that experience even once. The first series of classes in the indoctrination program—they called them cycles for reasons which escaped GE— had laid her groundwork in the scientific background she would need to establish even a basic understanding of the mission, and flew by easier than she, an artist by temperament and education, had expected. A few months after her uncomfortable encounter with the Laird of the Slugs, she found herself sitting in her second cycle class as if she were a freshman all over again. The Marathon Planetary Foundation had learned through long experience that, for their purposes, the most effective method of indoctrination was the Socratic workshop. Part interactive lecture, part group discussion, it recalled ancient educational traditions long since abandoned. For conveying information, the format was woefully inefficient, but for encouraging evaluation and solidarity, it remained unbeatable, and in the eyes of the Foundation, those were the things that really mattered." All their low-level corporate training was conducted this way. It had the added advantage of allowing the mission stability engineers, or the gods of the mission, as the candidates referred to them, to spot potential personality conflicts and avoid future trouble. It had worked since the first successful Mars expedition, and they didn't intend to change their process now, even if they were venturing into novel waters by bringing in neurotypicals. The lecturer... George, who, being strictly a mouthpiece and not a group mentor, was not afforded the dignity of a surname, paced the stage idly while performing his well practised lesson. Today we start from first principles. All other things being equal, the transmission of information over intersystem distances is limited to the speed of light. A signal from here to Mars, bounced and boosted through any of the orbital stations, faces a round trip of between 8 and 48 minutes. With standard packet verification, this means that a single bit of information will take approximately 16 minutes at opposition. That's your best case. But sir... G shouted out. "'I visited Phobos Station when I was twelve years old, "'and we had no problem with network access delays.' A clever workaround. Interplanetary mirror nodes sync every day across the solar systems. Redundant internets to provide the illusion of quick access. Nothing on a non-local node happens in real time, as you'll have noticed if you attempted a comms link-up. It all flows over the same network. Since text browser access is asynchronous, we can use asynchronous tricks to give people the illusion of real-time access. Now, in any network, over vast distances, you're confronted with the problem of information verification. The back-and-forth necessary to recover dropped packets and verify the integrity of received information eats up a spectacular amount of time. The farther away you get, the more you're subject to the laws of diminishing returns. A giant graph appeared on the screen behind him, plotting ascending astronomical units on the y-axis and descending transmission efficiency on the x-axis. Once you pass a certain point, and that point varies according to the nature and amount of the information being transmitted, it becomes faster and more cost-effective to move information storage devices from one place to another. All the verification is done at the point of transmission, so fidelity is assured at the point of receipt, and of course, you don't have to worry about interference disrupting the signal along the way. Solar storms and gamma-ray bursts don't disrupt shielded media. I know this must sound very pedestrian to all of you. I can hear you asking yourselves, What? I sold my soul for this? Well, that's because what I've just explained to you is the entire basis of our proprietary long-range space travel technology. GE and the 600 other members of the audience, other excursion candidates, trainees, Foundation folks studying for promotions, donors, and old hats bringing themselves up to speed with parts of the Foundation's vision normally invisible from their narrow specialties, Collectedly shifted in their seats, as if a small tsunami had just passed under the floor. I must remind you that everything you're hearing in this session is strictly confidential, and any leaks, even to your nearest and dearest, will result in prosecution to the fullest extent. What you're about to hear may disturb you. We're doing this class the old-fashioned way so we can deal with those feelings and ensure that you actually understand what you're signing up for, because we're about to turn your world upside down. Another slide appeared behind him that obligingly read, Everything you think is upside down. Everything you understand about the world from your day-to-day experience is wrong. In fact, it's exactly wrong. Now, this isn't going to come as news to most of you. Most of you know that you're made of atoms, which are mostly comprised of empty space and probability. But you also know that it doesn't matter at our level. We're not subject to quantum effects the way a photon is, and that's probably a good thing. It's a chaotic world down there, after all." The slide changed to another single line caption. Matter doesn't matter. Ever since Socrates, philosophers have debated whether matter was real or illusory, good or evil, if you will. Materialists held that it's all that there is, while Platonists held that it was a corrupting force that debased the noble content of the spirit. You'll find further reading on these in your orientation materials if you're someone who gets into philosophy. Chapter 6 is a pretty complete digest, so we won't cover it in depth here. Suffice it to say, good or bad, matter is the basic point of contact between all the different traditions that have, over the millennia, tried to figure out what the hell all of this, he made a sweeping gesture to encompass the entire universe, is here for. But what if... He paused for emphasis. What if matter didn't matter? Oh, we're still made of it. It's still what the accessible part of our universe is made of. But do you think it really matters which atoms are in your body as long as they're in the right proportions? You shouldn't. You're changing out atoms all the time. Your body runs on molecules. The particular stuff you're made of matters exactly much as the particular pieces of sand in a sandcastle. He paused for a moment to let the thought sink in, then continued. It's not the stuff you're made of that matters. It's how it's arranged. Another slide. First principle. The arrangement of matter is information. Information by itself isn't privileged. Chaos is information. Even noise is information. Everything is information. So information is not special. Information is not rare. But information is king. Who you are, what you think, how you're shaped, none of it is defined by the stuff you're made of. It's all defined by how that stuff is arranged. The essential you, the thing that makes you you, is information. Another slide. Second principle. Information, any information can be read. This is axiomatic. If it can't be read by something, it's not information. You all know your DNA and its expressions and epigenetic inflections can be read. You all know that your neural map can be read. Anytime you go in for surgery, both get backed up in case there's any mishap. This isn't to say it isn't information if we can't read it. Science's only job is to reduce our illiteracy. A hand shot up. Yes, Dr. Ansari. I believe you'll find the consensus view, as expressed first by Popper, is that science is an error detection mechanism to minimize the possibility of misapprehension. Yes, yes, critical realism. George waved at the air as if swatting flies. But error detection for what? For the testing of conclusions based upon empirical observations. And how does one reach those conclusions? Based upon previous experience? George looked at the whole audience and shrugged theatrically. We could go on all day like this, couldn't we? An infinite regress, taking us all the way back into the history of science. Thank you, Dr. Ansari. I believe you'll find what I'm saying is perfectly compatible with Papa. Dr. Ansari sat down. From where she sat, G e imagined she could distinguish a skeptical scowl on his face. You see, George started prancing again, those empirical observations are meaningless in and of themselves unless they can be plugged into a theory that gives them meaning. We find the limits of our theories when the meaning we think we've discovered ceases to fit the observations we've accumulated. That would be Kuhn's insight, Dr. Ansari. A ripple of uncharitable laughter swept through the room. Ansari's scowl lost what little bit of openness it previously held. And we discover that thanks to the Critical Realist toolkit propounded by Popper. But the reason that we're able to construct theories at all is because things truly ARE systemic in nature. Physics has its own language, which emerges from theory and then becomes independent of theory as it begins to express and critique the theory. Biology is the same. We have learned some of the algorithms, the axioms and grammar, if you will, that comprise nature through the kind of research you all do here on this very campus. You are, at the bottom, linguists of the universe, because each sort of information is written in its own peculiar language. The entire object of scientific research is to learn more languages so we can read more of the information out there. But for something to be information, it must, in theory, be readable. Maybe not by us, but at least by something. Other atoms, the universe itself, anything else you care to imagine as long as it exists. Information that is not readable is not information. It only becomes information when a system or a mechanism exists to read it. This is important because, he summoned the next slide, third principle, space is very big. Even with the manix Alcubierre drive, it can take decades to get to some points even in our corner of the galaxy. This is the reason all our major expeditions have either been generation ships or small satellite space probes. And as we learned with the Proxima 1 disaster, coming out of transition can expose everyone to catastrophic doses of radiation if things aren't handled exactly right. We've gotten better at it since then, but we've still not sent any major long-range human explorers out past the first perimeter. Mass is still an obstacle, and we've run up against a wall in the laws of physics when it comes to being able to pack enough juice to make those transitions viable. We can send probes, but anything bigger than about four tons can't get beyond the first perimeter. But this isn't news to any of you, I'm sure. Another slide. Fourth Principle. Given the right machinery, information, any information, can be rewritten. Again, not controversial. We've had some pretty publicized cases, starting with the Harrisburg twins, where we've restored neural maps from backups. Most of you right now have domestic robots with wetware CPUs that were written in at the factory." G found herself nodding along. Even she, growing up as a refugee in bases from Morocco to her final stop in Salida at age 19, had always had wetware bots around. They were cheaper to maintain than traditional pets and could be retasked for household chores at the push of a button. Everyone had at least one. Fifty years ago, we here at the Foundation realized that if you put these principles in the right order, they add up to a novel method for transmitting information over vast distances. We've spent the last five decades perfecting that method, and now we're ready to deploy it. The speaker let the room catch up with him. He waited for the collective gasp. When it came, he smiled. I think that's enough for the morning session. Go get lunch. The discussion groups will convene back here in two hours. And that is part of chapter two of my new novel, The Resurrection Junket, which, as you could probably tell, is a hard science fiction adventure story taking place on the other side of the galaxy. It's one of the more out-there things I've written. But it is in the antithesis continuity, and it is getting some attention. Nathan Lowell called it a gut-twisting adventure I can't put down, and he's predicted it will be my major breakout book in science fiction. I hope he's right, but all that depends on whether or not all of you like it. So, if you would like to read The Resurrection Junket, it is now available everywhere in ebook and paperback, and we're working on the audiobook, which will be available in about six or eight months, I think. Be sure to check back next time when you'll be hearing an excerpt from Suave Rob's Rough and Ready Rugrat Rapture, book two in what's going to be the three-book Suave Rob series. It was a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to the release next month. Anyway, that's it for the story portion of the show. Now it's over to Kitty's Corner.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Kitty's Corner. So this week I was going to give you a great big rambling rant about sports ball. How sportsball all sounds the same. How sportsball fans are kind of goofy. How none of it makes any sense, and how it all melds together, and how there isn't a single day in the entire universe that doesn't have a sports ball game. But I can't. Because. The Seahawks are going! The Seahawks are going to the the Super Super Bowl! Bowl. The Seahawks are going to the Super Bowl! What can I say? I'm a little excited about that. I'm a one team kind of cat. So, since I cannot give you a proper kitty's corner today, I will instead tell you the tale of the knit hat. A few years back, I knit my dad a burgundy maroon scarf. It was a nice scarf, but as it's apt to happen when you knit such a thing, there was yarn left over after the scarf was done. I thought perhaps I should knit a hat to match. There was quite a bit of yarn, but not quite enough for a hat. So I went looking for yarn of the same weight in a complementary color, and knit up a little striped ribbed hat. Once it was finished, I put it aside, and I didn't send it to my dad. Are you ever going to send your dad that hat? asked my partner a few months later. It was spring by then, and probably too late to want a knit hat, but I could have sent a Christmas gift super early that year for once. I picked up the hat. It was well made, warm, and then I realized my terrible, terrible mistake. I had chosen beige as the second color. I can't send this to my dad, I said. These are Niners colors. Ah, are these the colors of the wrong sports ball team? Wasn't high on my list of considerations at the time, let alone my first one. Only, does this color look okay with maroon? "'I guess that means you have a hat,' said he. I looked at my partner as if he had just grown a second head. "'I can't wear this hat in public. "'It's a Niner's Colors. "'People will think I am a Niner's fan.' He stared at me for a long while, uncomprehendingly, as if I were the one who had grown a second head. Then he got up and got some tea. And thus the hat languished in the cupboard for two years, forgotten and unloved.' I put it on once, when it was especially cold, inside my own house, where no one would see it. Eventually, I started to think the hat, even a hat in the wrong sports ball team colors, should not gone unworn, and began hassling my guests to adopt the poor thing. One would think, in the San Francisco Bay Area, that this would not be especially difficult. However, most Californians don't think they need a warm hat, and I live in the East Bay, Raider fans won't leave the house looking like a Niners fan either. This quest to get rid of the hat became urgent in the run-up to the playoffs. I considered depositing on a Bart seat. Bart has been very good about losing my knitting. About a week before the NFC Championship match, I finally unloaded the hat. The recipient isn't a football guy, so he doesn't mind that it's Niners colors. Just as long as it doesn't clash with his favorite hockey teams. But at least it was out of the house on the day that the Seahawks beat the Niners. <laughs> and that's all that counts. As for me, I'm currently knitting a proper hat in blue and green yarn that my dad can wear. Hopefully it'll be done by Super Bowl, but yeah, I think it's going to be late. This has been Kitty's Corner. If you haven't been cornered by a cat, then you're really missing out, because I am the greatest corner cat in the NFL. I really should have dropped this last year.
0: The Next 10,000 Hours is a production of Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California, and features Por Una Cabeza, a work in the public domain arranged and performed by Danny Shade. This podcast is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the performers.